Thank you, musicians. I want to talk about that one who will hold us fast. I want to thank Pastor Phil for the invitation to be here and to Pastor Phil and, and Polly for their hospitality, uh, to uh, Pastor Phil's mother and to Doc for your hospitality and a place to stay and for the enthusiasm and focus I saw in the group that was here yesterday. And uh, it's just a joy and a privilege to be here and share the word of God with all of you and to share in the fellowship of the saints that you are enjoying and celebrating and looking ahead to more of. I'm going to talk today about the shepherd of our souls. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about sheep, and now the kids are all gone, but I wanted to ask, what do the sheep say? Just to hear the kids all you know, give their rendition of bah. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, that word sheep occurs 201 times in the ESV. There are a lot of sheep in the Bible. The word lamb occurs 112 times, and 30 times it's capitalized because it's not talking about a young sheep, but about the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So not only are people cast as sheep, but also the Savior of people is cast as a sheep. And then the word shepherd occurs 62 times, and five times it's capitalized. And we're gonna see one of those times in our Bible reading. And sometimes the word shepherd refers to God even when it is not in capital letters. And I was reminded of one of those places this week I had to do a very difficult funeral. And one of the verses I read is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In the Bible, people are often characterized as sheep. And an example is in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his or her own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There are a lot of ways that we're like sheep. And uh, I've got a 20-second video to illustrate how we are like sheep. So that's a sheep in a trench. Come on, little sheep, come on. You. Yay, he's free. <laughs> Can we see that again? I don't believe what I just saw. This is a rescue operation. There's a, the good shepherd. He's rescuing the helpless sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. Now we're free. Yay! So the point is that sheep need a guardian. Sheep get into jams. Sheep need a shepherd. And in this respect, people are no different. I once heard a wise old pastor say, you're either facing trials, you just came through trials, or you're about to face trials. And sometimes, like in the video, we feel jammed into a trench and we can't get out. And sometimes it seems like it's one trench after another. Well, one of the highlights of First Peter, which you've heard a lot about as a congregation, and which we highlighted yesterday, 
One of the highlights of that book is a reminder that in Christ we have a shepherd and we have an overseer of our souls. Here are the verses we're looking at this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 21, and we'll read through 25. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This morning I want to I want us to hear most of all what I think First Peter talks the most about, and that's about Christ Jesus. And that's really just one thing, the person and the work of Christ. But in this passage we just read, we see really about seven things, seven ways that we need his work on our behalf because we are sheep who need a shepherd and an overseer. Seven ways we need his work and at the same time, that will be seven ways he is there for us. Let us pray. Lord, let the good shepherd fill our minds and touch our hearts and encourage every one of us in this entire congregation. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first way we need this shepherd and that he is there for us. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, by example, in this case, the Bible does not hint that we need to die on the cross like Jesus did. His death was unique. It was a complete sacrifice. Christ also suffered once for sin, the Bible says, the righteous one for the unrighteous many to bring us to God. So that's something he did and he alone. But by example here, Scripture is telling us that Jesus offers a template of self-giving, of giving ourselves to God and to others, and this provides a framework for us to live into. If there is a father and he's building a retaining wall, and if the kids are helping, You know, he gives an example of carefulness and hard work and focus. You can get hurt building a retaining wall. But kids can help. They can follow his example as they fetch tools, maybe help move dirt, maybe carry a brick or a block, depending on the weight of the building material and how big the kids are. But the builder doesn't expect the kids to buy the blocks Haul the blocks from Lowe's, split the blocks with a chisel or a diamond saw, design the wall, or actually build it. He's the builder. They are his helpers. They're his disciples as they learn from him how to help build the wall. And it's their wall as well as his when it's done because they helped. But they're following in support of steps that only he could take. 
Christ is building a kingdom, and he's upholding all things by his word and power. He offers us the privilege of assisting, and we need this involvement in our lives. We need to be living out this commitment to him in all we do to avoid wasting our lives. He calls us from the darkness of lives that we define to lives that he designs. As an old hymn goes, footsteps of Jesus that make the pathway glow. His steps are like runway lights. If you think of an airline, a plane landing, his steps are like runway lights for our lives. A second way that we need Christ and that he is there for us. Christ displays the perfection of holiness. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. There was something about Jesus that set him apart. And as we trust him and we grow in him, it sets us apart. Peter who wrote this, knew this very well. What would it have been like to be around a person so good, so upright, so virtuous, so wise, that it made you aware of your sinfulness? Well, Peter knew. Early in one of the Gospels, Jesus told some fishermen, and remember Jesus, by trade, was a builder. He's a carpenter, or some people think a stonemason, but he, he built. And then he sort of emerged as a, as a religious figure. He was, he was a prophet. He was a preacher. So here's a builder who's now preaching. And he tells some fishermen, these are career fishermen, to let down their nets even though they knew better. So here's the story. Jesus says, let your nets down. And uh, Simon, that's Peter, he says, "Uh, Master, sir, we toiled all night and took nothing. (laughs) You know what? And that's when you catch fish. You don't catch fish once the sun's shining. And also Jesus has been out in a boat talking, making noise. There's all this commotion. I mean, the fish are not going to be there, right? And they knew that. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, (laughs) and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter already back then felt what he wrote in 1 Peter. He committed no sin. And this convicted Peter of his sin, and he repented, and he set about following Christ. Now over time in his life, Peter saw that the religious leaders considered Jesus a false prophet. Peter knew better. He knew there was no deceit found in his mouth. Jesus spoke the truth. He lived out the truth. He was the truth. 
He could be trusted in all he taught and promised. Jesus displays a perfection of holiness that transforms those who trust in him. Not overnight, but as long as we are on this earth, as long as we are following, on, following Jesus, we are being conformed more and more into his image. His perfection convicts us of our sin, and through repentance and faith and worship and service, his, his life, his resurrection life, at the right hand of God interceding for us right now, that life of Christ begins to permeate our life. A third way that we need Christ and that our good shepherd is there for us, Christ displays the restraint that allows God's will to be done. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Now sometimes we do need to speak up for ourselves or defend ourselves or those that we have responsibility for, like our children or a friend. But sometimes people may wrong us, and we are tempted to get revenge. We want to return evil with evil. This happens a lot in traffic. You know, we have this thing called road rage. Jesus walked a higher road. Jesus possessed the power of God but he restricted himself to doing the Father's will. He was not always advancing his personal human welfare. And this often meant living under the shadow of false rumors, insults, people twisting what he said and what he did. And right down to Jesus' final week and right down to his arrest and his illegal trial, Jesus was wronged but he didn't threaten. Jesus asked his interrogators, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? A legion is a thousand. That's a lot of angels. One angel would have been enough. Yes, Jesus could have made that appeal. But he let the Father's will unfold to his own short-term harm. Every day, on average, over 200 Christians are martyred in various corners of the globe. In places like China and India and many Muslim-majority countries, believers are reviled. They suffer. As humans, they do not like it. As God's people, quite typically, they do not revile in return. They do not threaten. How different our society is. Social media and newspaper letters to the editor and mainstream news programs are full of reviling. Libel lawsuits proliferate. Politicians say outrageous things about the other party or its constituents, and that rubs off on us. Christians pray daily as Jesus taught, Father, thy will be done. Your will be done, Lord. This doesn't mean we live as career doormats in every circumstance. It does mean we bear injustice with grace 
and trust in God when we must. By faith, we find in ourselves the strength that Christ had to temper our urge to lash out when adversaries treat us unfairly or cruelly. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, Jesus taught. Peter saw this happen and he practiced it and he never forgot what Jesus had modeled. A fourth way that we need Christ the Good Shepherd and that he is there for us, he displays steadfastness. Verse 23, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It wasn't just one sensational act that he committed. It was a, a pattern. It was a character trait. It was a habit of the heart and of the hands and of the head. The measure of a person is how much it takes to make them quit. On the night Jesus was betrayed, Jesus told his disciples that they would all desert him. They would quit. They scoffed at Jesus. They, they said they would even die for him. And as we know, they didn't back up their promise. Every one of them, Scripture says, said, we will die for you. Usually Peter gets blamed for that, but if you read the fine print, they all said the same thing. Every one of them cut and run. You can sum up the whole of Jesus' final week on earth, what we call the Passion Week or the Suffering Week, with these words that we're looking at. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's Passion Week. That's the script. Entrusting himself. When a man he had called and a man he had washed the feet of went out into the night to betray him. Entrusting himself when the soldiers arrested him in the garden. You ever been arrested? You ever seen an arrest? You ever been stopped by security? High adrenaline. He entrusted himself. He was entrusting himself when he told the soldiers, remember this? Let these men go. And he threw himself under the bus so they could flee. And trusting himself before the corrupt chief priests and the false witness, false witnesses who could not agree on the charges against him. They're all lying through their teeth. He just stands there. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. See, that's mocking him. Purple robe, yeah. Pilate said, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The religious leaders answered, we have a law and according to to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. 
So Pilate said to him, you do, not, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered at this point, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin, that is the religious leaders, excuse me. Jesus gave no answer for his own defense and protection. He gave answer only for Pilate's own sake to remind Pilate of the God over him and of the unholy schemers whom Pilate was letting steamroll him into making the worst legal decision ever made, the sentencing to death of the Son of God. None of us will ever stand such a trial. But all believers must learn to live trusting God when things aren't fair. A lot of people have difficulty having children. And mothers lose babies. That's not fair. That's how you feel. And there's a lot of truth in that. But that's just one example of thousands of things that we face in life that we have no answer for, and we cry out, why? Another example, we're all called to love others, and often when we open up to others, we are taken advantage of. Sometimes in marriage, one partner takes advantage of the other. And all the time, children fail to appreciate how much sacrifice they require from their parents. Now, I'm not saying a spouse should enable their own abuse, and I'm not saying parents need to spoil their children, but I am saying that Christ displays the willingness to endure short-term injustice for the sake of God's long-term purposes. And I'm calling that steadfastness. Jesus offers this grace of steadfastness to his followers in our own sphere of service and in our testing and in our calling. A fifth way that we need the good shepherd and that he is there for us. Christ displays the mystery of our redemption by his crucifixion. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Sounds very simple, but stick with me here. Charles Wesley wrote, "'Tis mystery all the immortal dies." That's a, that's a contradiction. We worship the Lord based on what he has revealed to us in his word. But we worship him also for what he has revealed that we cannot fathom. And this includes the mystery of all that took place on the cross. Peter writes about this early in 1 Peter. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, and the subsequent 
glories. So Peter is looking back to Abraham and to Moses and to Samuel and to Isaiah and to David and to all these prophets and summarizing their message as a wrestling with the spirit of Christ in them, trying to figure out what, what lies ahead that we're, we're foreshadowing with our prophecies. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, in other words, it's not going to be fulfilled in your times, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Evangelists, and, and by that time pastors like Pastor Phil, preaching the gospel, things into which angels long to look. Peter sums up the entire message of the Old Testament prophets as the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Even the angels regard these things with wistful longing. How sad that Jesus' death for our sins is regarded so lightly by so many both outside and inside the church. Every claim Peter makes in this verse, sinful humans throw up roadblocks. He himself, wrote the underlining, bore our sins in his body on the tree. He did it himself. Many today reject Jesus' divine nature. In fact, that's very common among scholars of the Bible and theologians. They do not think Jesus was a divine human. Great teacher, great prophet, but not the Son of God. And in this view, since he can bring us to God because he wasn't God, we have to complete or fulfill God's commands, whatever they are, to be saved. And this is salvation by works, not grace. Or, let's move down, he himself bore our sins. Whole denominations in the West, Protestant denominations, have decades ago rejected the notion of original sin or total depravity. And in this view, man is basically good. There's no eternal punishment. There may not be a heaven, but who cares? God does not punish evil, but he will in the end bring everything into heaven. All will be well. We're living in an age of increasing lawlessness. The idea is if we legalize wrongdoing, then people won't be criminals anymore. And what we're seeing is increasing criminality and injustice and suffering of the innocent at the hand of the lawless. The Bible says in Proverbs 28, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. We deal with our sins not by concealing them, but by outing ourselves before the Lord so that, we can, so that he can remedy our ills based on the merits of Christ. And this is true not only of individuals, but of communities and societies and nations. Or moving on, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The Muslim world, which is one-fifth of the world's population, denies that it was Jesus on the cross. Mainline Protestantism denies the notion of Christ accepting the punishment for our sin on the cross. 
That's called substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. We hear it all the time here because this is a Bible-believing church. But mainline denominations are stridently polemical against this idea of there being a God who would punish sins, especially in a human being. Jews, of course, deny that Jesus was the Messiah. And in the Jewish view, Jesus deserved to die because he was a false prophet. He was a liar and an imposter. So for many reasons, people discount that Jesus bore our sins if we turn to him in faith. What we do with the mystery of the cross is the biggest game changer in the Christian life. What we do with the mystery of the cross is the biggest game changer in the Christian life. It is also the best predictor of pseudo-Christianity or the kind of religion that has the appearance of godliness, to paraphrase Paul, but denies its power. This is the godliness that manifested mightily and uniquely in the mystery of the death of the righteous one for the unrighteous many. A sixth way that we need the good shepherd and that he is there for us. Christ displays the source of our hope. Verse 24, he bore our sins that we might die to sin and live, live to righteousness. A sign of the sickness of our age is the loss of hope, the loss of purpose, the loss of reason to exist. In almost all demographics, suicide rates edge up, and sometimes they vault forward dramatically. Opioid deaths have exploded. More and more countries like Canada are enabling the deaths of the aged, the ill, and the handicapped, sometimes even against their will. And there is the ongoing scourge of abortion to the tune of over a billion in the past century. It's been estimated that three to 4,000 babies are terminated daily in the U.S., over 10,000 a day in India, over 15,000 a day in China. The majority worldwide are little girls. In the U.S., black babies are aborted at a much higher rate than white. Far more black babies die daily by abortion than by street violence. Too bad that for many in power, the baby's lives don't matter compared to adult desires that override the need of the unborn for protection. We're talking about a lot of murder, which is sin in itself, but Christ calls all who will hear to a death to sin that is at once a life to righteousness. He bore our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Sin, as Pastor Phil already said to us, is what drags us down, robs us of direction, loads us with guilt, and dishonors God. Sin robs us of hope because it burdens us with guilt. Jesus, the righteous one, instills his righteousness into those who repent and trust him. That's what it mean, means, live unto righteousness. What difference does that make well, here are a few observations about the righteous. People who enter into a covenant with God through faith in his promise 
fulfilled in Christ. I'm not talking about the self-righteous. I'm not people, talking about people who think they're righteous. I'm talking about people who really are because they know they're sinners and they're trusting in Christ and he is infusing his righteousness into them. The power of the promise that changes hearts and that changes how we live looks like this. And I've just put together a collage of verses from one book of the Bible. The path of the righteous is like the light of day, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. This is your life if you're a believer in Christ. Blessings are on the head of the righteous. The memory of the righteous is a blessing. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. The wage of the righteous leads to life. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The lips of the righteous feed many. Next page. The desire of the righteous will be granted. The righteous is established forever. The hope of the righteous brings joy. The mouth of the righteous brings freedom. The lips of the righteous knows what is acceptable. The righteous is, is delivered from trouble. The righteous will flourish like a green leaf. The fruit of the righteous is tree of life. No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. Christ's steadfastness alive in those who trust in him. This is what Christ died for. Not just our eternity with God in heaven, as great as that is, but the replacement of sin and our lives with his righteousness so thick and so sweet and so good that we crave it and we go after it and we embody it and we share it more and more. He bore our sins, not so we might be forgiven of sins, as great as that is, but so we can live with his resurrection fullness. The last thing we see in these few verses that we need the good shepherd for and that he is there to give us, to offer us. Christ displays our ultimate healing. By his wounds, you have been healed. I don't care who you are. You have been dinged. There's a well-known book that tells about it. I'm sure some here have read it. It's a book that's written from a social science and also a medical angle. It's not a Christian book, but it's a brilliant book. And it's called The Body Keeps the Score. The Body Keeps the Score. It's about trauma. And we're all walking wounded. Some are living in recovery through faith in Christ. That would be me. Most people limp along at best. That would be me too. Not only have we likely suffered trauma, the longer we live, the more likely that we have hurt others. Humans are good at that by nature. And to compensate, to function, to survive, many, let's call it, medicate. Many medicate with alcohol, with drugs, with pleasure, with denial, with meds, with diversions, with vice, with career. The Bible describes this as alienation from God, and there's only one cure, forgiveness and 
grace producing the fruit of Christ's righteousness in our lives. That's the only cure. An old hymn asked, what can wash away my sins? And if you grew up in that revival tradition, then you know the answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And the hymn goes on, what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I've got to be careful. We'll be breaking out in song, and then the neighbors will think this is a Pentecostal church, and who knows what can happen next. Oh, precious is the flow that washes white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. There, I said it, so you don't have to sing it. With the words, by his wounds you have been healed, Peter reaches back over 800 years to Isaiah the prophet. Over the generations, over the centuries, God's promise stands. God is as steadfast as the Son of God. We long for wholeness. In God's promise to Eve of an offspring that would crush the serpent's head, in God's promise to Noah, signified by the rainbow, the real rainbow, in God's promise to Abraham and to Samuel, and to David, and to Jeremiah, and to Malachi, and to many more, God calls his people to restoration. He healed us in advance in the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. There's another mystery. He healed us when Jesus' blood was shed. He healed us when he raised him and when he exalted him to his right hand one with the Father in the Spirit interceding for us at this moment. We are being healed as we sit here this morning and allow God and the Spirit of God to minister to us. We're being healed by God's sanctifying work. We will be eternally and gloriously healed in the last day when we see him as he is. And we become what God's people are destined to be in his presence with great joy. For all who trust and follow Christ, this verdict applies. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let our shepherd, let our overseer, our guardian, and all the means of grace that he provides, common and special, work your healing now and into eternity. Let us pray. Lord, we praise you for the healing balm of the ministry of your son. And we worship you, and we thank you for the privilege of singing your praise of sharing in the elements that signify all that has been done will continue to be done in your steadfastness and that we will continue to praise you for an eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue, 
adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.